if dogs can be trained to lead the blind and dolphins to do the hula, then surely some white people can be taught to speak Chinese. But let's zoom out for a second. There are many divisions within what we generally agree to call the Chinese language. You've probably heard of Mandarin, but Wu, Gan, Shang, Min, Kujia, and Cantonese round out the traditionally accepted set of seven major dialect groups. Some other rebellious linguists have further refined these categories to include Jin, Huizhou, and Pinghua. These tend to share features of several dialects, making them easy to crudely lump in with other groups and call it a day. Still further varieties of Chinese, those spoken on distant islands and in border regions, remain unclassified. Pinyin, the romanization of standard Mandarin, is the variety most commonly spoken by that peculiar breed, the expatriate living in China. It is not a language. I repeat, Pinyin is not a language. It's a halfway house of a language, a sort of training bra for before you graduate to fully developed capital C cup Chinese. But Pinyin constitutes a fascinating cabinet of curiosities unto itself. I would argue that Pinyin contains an unquantifiable amount of possible classifications. There is survival Pinyin, taxi Pinyin, college girl Pinyin, massage table Pinyin, drug dealer Pinyin, street corner Pinyin, WeChat Pinyin, park Pinyin, resume Pinyin, backpacker Pinyin, and on and on it goes. Dozens of new varieties have been born just since you press play on this episode. What I'm saying is that Chinese, the more one looks into it, is more of an umbrella term encompassing an infinity of umbrella terms than it is a meaningful descriptor of anything. But the type of Chinese that we're concerning ourselves with in this story isn't really Chinese at all. And in that way, it may be the most Chinese of all Chinese varieties. It has been said that black is not a color, black is the absence of light. This is something along those lines. It is a Chinese in absentia, a Potemkin Chinese, a Schrodinger's cat Chinese, simultaneously there and not there. This is the Chinese of chancers, upstarts, and rogues. It's no one's mother tongue. Unless your mother is a 43-year-old Ukrainian arms dealer traveling under the alias Cowboy. I'm calling it Ghost Chinese, but I'm open to suggestions. You don't know it yet, but you're already fluent. listening to Have We Met Before. My name is Kasia, and these are stories of people I can't forget. took Line 2 to Jing'an Temple Station three nights a week. Jing'an Su is surrounded by a sprawling Technicolor shopping mall that I traversed to get to my Chinese school. 
Classes were held on the 15th floor of a gaudy blue and gold high-rise with China Construction Bank branded at the top. The lobby was always crowded, even late into the evening. There were three elevators, but these were not enough. One went to the odd floors, another to the even, and the third went to both. Though my class was on an odd floor, I seemed to always end up riding the even floor elevator and then racing up or down one floor on the stairwell. In hindsight, this predicament was fitting. I was always moving, but never quite getting where I was going. The students varied drastically from class to class. I attended with religious devotion, but this made me a rarity. A lot of my classmates skipped a lot, and a good number never even attended once. These phantom students registered for the course only to satisfy the requirements of a student visa, allowing them to legally reside in China for the length of their studies. But once they had that passport sticker, they were free to conduct whatever shady business dealings they came here to do, never sparing a thought for Chinese culture or language ever again. This was very illegal, of course, as our Chinese teacher would say whenever the subject came up, giggling with a touch of shame. It was immigration fraud, more or less, but the school was complicit. They were raking in thousands of U.S. dollars through this practice every month and would continue to do so for as long as they turned a blind eye. Nationality is just another thing to profit from, and language follows close after. On this particular night, the real, live students were the South African, the Frenchman, the Brazilian, the Russian, and myself, the American. If that sounds like the cast of an Agatha Christie story, you aren't too far off from what was about to take place. The South African was always early and ready with a story of her bumbling misadventures. How she got mugged while riding a bicycle, how all her grocery bags got swiped in her hallway, how she got tricked into buying 12 bananas instead of two, etc. She was from Johannesburg, and she would note with pride had sloughed off just enough of the accent in order to hack it as an English teacher in China. Sidebar. The American accent was the most coveted on the English teacher black market, and yes, such a thing definitely exists, followed closely by the British, assuming it was the Queen's. Australian was passable, European too, unless you came from one of the unsexy countries, in which case you would earn a fraction of what your cooler member nation brethren were earning. If you were an English speaker from India or Madagascar or basically anywhere else, better to risk the lie and say you were American. I know a lot of girls who did. Only the sloppy ones got their visas revoked. Anyways, the South African had an outgoing personality which was admirable about half the time and annoying the rest. She knew how to intervene in a social situation when unspoken problems were bubbling up. She was unafraid to name them, allowing things to be smoothed over and returned to their natural order but she was also a bit of an airhead. When the teacher asked her to formulate a sentence in Chinese, she would make goofy faces and sound out each syllable as if the language were silly and the task impossible. Of course, the teacher never asked an impossible question in the first place. She was far too afraid of us to do that. Then there was the Frenchman. Well, he was a boy, really, 20 years old, but seemed younger. He was sweet and earnest from a rural village. He'd never been on a plane before coming to Shanghai. He'd never been to Paris except to catch said plane. It'd been months now since he arrived, a naive country boy to this city built on blood and opium, and you could still see the shock in his eyes. I remember him going away for a week-long trip to Changchun once. 
Changchun is the big automobile manufacturing center, and he was studying to engineer something to do with cars. He was distraught upon returning, moaning about how much he missed the friends he'd made there in all of seven days. What was so great about them? I asked. They shared my values, he said, with such tenderness that I wanted to pop. The Frenchie and I had many private conversations. He was the only other student who also rode Line 2. The rest rode Line 7, but they were always abruptly cut off by an incoming train. He took the train toward East Sujing, and I took it toward Pudong Airport. The Brazilian kept a low profile. He was with the embassy, in his mid-thirties, married with two children. He was very much a bureaucrat, down to his molten whiteout center. All of us often tried and failed to engage him in human conversation. No subject seemed to animate him. Language classes revealed a lot quickly how confident one was in facing new challenges, how willing one was to work hard, to push through despite feeling or looking foolish. But the Brazilian managed to reveal next to nothing, which was a revealing fact unto itself. The Russian was a cold, striking blonde. Besides myself, she seemed to be the only other student dedicated to actually learning Chinese. She paid attention, she participated, she did the homework, she studied for exams, she took them seriously. And hers wasn't even the name on the sign-in sheet. She'd taken the place of one of the phantom students I mentioned earlier. The ghost student was her boyfriend, also a Russian. She felt bad about the tuition going to waste, so here she was. She told me how she found it difficult to learn Chinese through English when she'd only recently gotten a grasp on the latter. She taught herself English by watching American sitcoms. Which ones? I asked. Silicon Valley, she said. If I went to America, that's where I'd go. She designed phone apps. Finally, there was the Chinese teacher. You can, but shouldn't, have a Chinese class without a Chinese teacher. But that night, she was recovering from foot surgery, so we had a substitute. The substitute was also native-born. Classes were two hours, with a break in between. In the first hour, the substitute managed to drive us through double the usual amount of material. She urged us to start on character-drawing exercises right away. She couldn't believe that our teacher hadn't got us going on them yet. She thought we needed to master pinyin first, the South African explained. But pinyin is not a language, the substitute countered. And this truism reverberated through us like a sonic boom. During the break, we all went out of the conference room and into a nicely stocked common area. The walls to the outside were all glass from floor to ceiling, but at night, with the fluorescent lights on, you couldn't tell until you pressed your face up against them. Jing'an District, which from the street put me in a sour mood, looked downright inspiring when viewed from above. I stole a moment to do this each break before being drawn back into dialogue with my classmates. The break area had a hot and cold water dispenser and a tray with hot cocoa packets and several varieties of tea. I had some water. Travel teaches you to jump at any opportunity to drink clean water. Presumably clean water. You never know what it might be your last. The Brazilian was steeping a styrofoam cup of green tea. The South African, the Russian, and the Frenchman had all gone to the bathroom, so I got to talking with the Brazilian. Surprisingly, he initiated. He asked me which Clarice Lispector book I recommended starting with. Referencing a conversation about Brazilian literature we'd had, I don't know, maybe a month prior. He had to have been an excellent diplomat or spy or whatever it was that he was. He had an excellent memory for what I deemed throwaway chit-chat. 
and he could extract large amounts of information from you while leaving zero impression of him as a person. The Brazilian knew he had pressed my buttons correctly as I launched into an extemporaneous monograph on the subject, but somewhere between near to the wild heart and passion according to G.H., I noticed an unfamiliar character, male, Chinese, at least six foot tall, gray hoodie, hair gelled within an inch of its life, walk in and take a seat at the rickety little cafe bar. No one ever took a seat at the rickety little cafe bar. I felt a further prick of alarm when I noticed a large, oddly shaped package seated on the ground beside him. The Brazilian was similarly piqued. We didn't have to wait in suspense for long, though, because after browsing his phone for a moment, the mystery man broke into our conversation. Excuse me, do you know this blonde Russian girl? I think her name's Larissa? He asked. He had photos of her pulled up on his phone, standard social media fare, and swiped through a few. Yes, I said flatly. The Brazilian and I exchanged suspicious looks. I have a flower delivery for her, the man said. We stared in silence. I had once been party to a giddy conversation with the Russian where she expressed positive feelings towards her opposite-sex unmarried partner, so I presumed that these were from him. Perhaps it was her birthday or their anniversary or something, but something felt off, and the Brazilian's instincts seemed to align with my own. It seemed a bit flashy for a self-serious, studious girl like the Russian. Who are you? The Brazilian asked the delivery man, finally. I'm a guy who delivers flowers. What is the name of the company you work with? It's, it's nothing like that, he stammered. People just find me uh, online. Online? Online where? He pressed. I was frozen in my role as a spectator. Uh, the delivery man replied. He was rapidly hemorrhaging credibility. The South African, the Frenchie, and the Russian returned then from the bathroom. The Russian had unscrewed the lid of her water bottle and was zeroed in on the water cooler. Hi, Larissa, the man said. I have a surprise for you. Waggling his eyebrows a little bit. He reaches down for the cellophane-wrapped package on the floor. He moves to unwrap it, but it takes some effort. What's revealed is a display of red roses and gold frills that rivaled Shanghai Tower for size. But the flowers and the delivery man are keys to a secret code that only the Russian knows. Once she notices them, it takes her all of two seconds to recognize the situation as dangerous. Her face becomes a mask of terror. She drops the bottom half of the water bottle and it flies across the floor, spraying a few of us. The South African deftly sidesteps its trajectory. You. No. Don't you come near me, she shouts turning her wrath on the delivery man. She's still grasping the water bottle lid and straw, white-knuckling it like it were this man's neck. The cold water tap is left switched on, creating a pool of water on the floor. If this happens one more time, I will call the police, you hear me? Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. The South African is repeating on a loop. Hey, 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 don't get the wrong idea, the delivery man says, as the Russian physically backs him into a corner. This must be the guy. She told me about this guy. I can't believe this is the guy, the South African is saying in my ear. I had no idea what she was talking about. The Brazilian walks over to the flower arrangement and searches it for a personalized note or a company card or something of the sort. The Frenchie looks shocked, but he always did. 
I don't want flowers, chocolates, free rides, nothing. You tell him to stop and to never contact me again, the Russian says. The delivery man is trying to calm her down, but also trying to clear his name. These are from some guy. I don't know. I just deliver them. I had no idea it was like this. I promise. I, I had no idea, he says. I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from him. I don't even know him. I don't want to know him. I have a boyfriend, she declares, as if this were a kicker. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry, the delivery man is saying, unsure of what he's apologizing for. You tell him what I said. You tell him. I will call the police. It's not right. It's not right, is it? It's just not right. The South African says in her Johannesburg draw, which I will not attempt, which gets stronger under duress. So you don't know this guy at all? The delivery man asks. He's realized now that playing into the Russian's routine will let him escape with both his testicles. No, he follows me on Instagram, but I never talk to him. And I have boyfriend. She retreats around the corner, and we all know she's calling the male companion in question. We can all hear her venting under her breath in Russian. It's just some flowers, no? The Frenchie says to no one in particular. The South African goes into the classroom to tell the teacher what's been going on. The Brazilian has a surreptitious grin plastered on his face. I do what I always do when I can't think of anything else to do. I start interviewing. The delivery man was still clinging to his corner, furiously texting someone. Tell me everything you know about the man who brought these flowers, I said. I don't know much. What's his name? How did he pay you? Credit card? What kind? How much was the charge? Do you want some water? The Brazilian gets it for him. How exactly did he describe Larissa? Did he mention anything about his relationship to her? I recorded all of his responses in a note on my phone. The Russian concluded her phone call. And I backed away from the hostage, knowing that he was hers to kill or not kill as she chose. Is this the guy you were telling me about? The South African tried to ask, but the Russian was too freaked out to answer. How did he know I was here? She asked, her voice breaking a bit. The delivery man shrugged. He genuinely seemed to know nothing. We have no choice but to let him leave. He sincerely apologized again picked up the hefty arrangement and wedged it as well as he could into the crook of one arm. Wait, are you taking those with you? I asked, almost despite myself. I don't want them, the Russian said. But they're pretty. They're from a stalker, she said. But could I take them? They'll just go to waste otherwise. If Cassia doesn't take them, I'd like them for my wife, the Brazilian adds. He was definitely not getting my flowers, but I appreciated the backup. The Russian looked confused and a tad pissed, but after a pregnant pause, she nodded. They're already paid for, the delivery man said, placing them at my feet. The Brazilian pulled out a wad of cash, I didn't see how much, from his pocket for a tip. The delivery man started jogging away with it, making his exit before the Brazilian changed his mind. The South African slung her arm around the Russian, who was sniffling. The Frenchie rolled his eyes. I think I was the only one who saw. We had to debrief the incident before class could resume. The substitute was impatient with us for dwelling on the issue, but must have recognized that nothing would be learned until the group therapy came to a natural conclusion. The Russian told us that the older man was from her country. She said she was too scared to utter his name, but I had it written in a phone note. 
He had seen photos of her on social media and began leaving suggestive comments. Creepy, but common enough. Then, all of a sudden, he started sending her gifts to different places that she went. She'd be out at a restaurant, and one of this man's emissaries would appear to foot the bill. She'd leave a club early in the morning, and there'd be a limo and a driver holding a sign with her name on it, waiting outside. She'd have a box of truffles sitting on her desk when she arrived at work, and now a flower arrangement sent to her Chinese class. She had no idea how he'd located her, she hadn't posted online about any of these places, and was understandably spooked. The substitute laughed through the whole tale. She treated the situation with a great deal more levity than the rest of us did. To her, this was normal. This man, maybe he love you a little bit? She asked. You don't get it, the South African said, shaking her head. The Russian was repulsed by this suggestion. Love me? He doesn't even know me, she shot back. I don't think of myself as a drama lover, but I must admit I found the entire situation thrilling. Not just because I would be going home with a tranche of roses, but I knew I had to behave as though it were all so repugnant, so I did. Yes, but this doesn't matter, the substitute said. In China, this is something you all need to understand about Chinese culture. If you have enough money, you can know whatever you want to know. Nothing is private, not if you can pay a lot and you can pay in cash. Yes, I am from Russia, the Russian said. I think I know this too. The substitute asked if she's ever posted anything with the name or location of the Chinese school attached to it. The Russian had already said that she hadn't. And so again said, no, never, I don't do that. Are you sure? Nowhere? Not on Facebook? Absolutely not, the Russian said in a huff. The substitute nodded like she didn't really believe it, but was agreeing to drop the matter. When class ended, we all walked to the metro together as we usually did, minus the Russian. Her boyfriend was waiting outside when we left. I expected him to be a burly KGB-type defender, but discovered instead a scrawny young man with wiry eyeglasses and basketball shorts. The two hugged like she just suffered a death in the family. We left them on the corner to mourn. May I carry your flowers for you? The Frenchie asked as we neared the entrance to the underground. He held the roses to his stomach and took a giant whiff. They have no smell, he remarked. Shut up, I said, delighted to have received my first flower delivery, even though it was not meant for me. That they were roses from a shadowy Slavic predator only made it better. for listening to Have We Met Before. Join me again in two weeks to make a new friend. The music composed by John Hookstra. Hookstra.